Hello there, my friends. Welcome back to Cloud Wars Live. The digital revolution is in full swing all around us. Of course, it's taken a couple steps backward here as it's also taking multiple steps forward in these troubled economic times. But nevertheless, the underlying story is, I think, one of ongoing innovation, growth, and opportunity. Uh, we've got with us one of our favorite monthly digital all-stars, in fact, our longest-running digital all-star, Wayne Saden, who has been a part of Cloud Wars Live since its inception four years ago. Wayne, welcome. After nearly 50 episodes together, I can continue to say it is a pleasure to see you. And I feel the same way, Bob. The more we talk, the more I learn, the more we have fun. And this has been a terrific four years, and it'll continue forever, I think. Yeah, Wayne, you know, you hear some about these uh, online relationships. You and I met on uh, on LinkedIn. So it's sort of like an online relationship, isn't it? Absolutely. It feels like, like a dating site. You know, here we are, we met, and four years later, we're still together. I love it. <laughs> That's true. That's definitely a thumbs up. Thumbs up. Wayne, you know, these days, uh, it is, it's challenging to try to wring out what really is going on, right? We see a uh, company, if I could just use Microsoft as an example, they will come close to $100 billion in cloud revenue this calendar year uh, with a growth rate that will probably for the year come in somewhere between 25 and 30%, just astonishing growth. Yet a lot of the projections we hear in the news or the coverage, the perspectives on it is one of sort of like the sky is falling. Well, I think there's a lot of companies that wouldn't mind, you know, on a multi, multi-billion dollar base, being able to grow in double digits, let alone the mid-20s. So you've done some thinking about this, and I, I think you've got some pretty interesting perspectives to share. Yeah, let me just comment on your statement about troubled economy and Microsoft growth and what investors see. Um, I came out of the financial services business for a lot of years, and investor sentiment blows hot and cold. Mm -hmm. Remember when the subprime mortgage crisis hit and all, all home loans were worth zero? Every house in the United States was worth nothing, and that precipitated an economic crisis. When the lemmings all run over the cliff, they all run over the cliff. Yeah. Because the economy that's troubled, that was the word you use because you see it in the press, we keep creating jobs. Sales are up in a lot of companies. Um, so the particular statistic that keeps getting everybody's mind, especially in tech, is, oh, my goodness, look at the layoffs going on in tech. So I did a little chart. I picked six companies, not quite at random, but I could have included more. And, Bob, I'm stealing a, a page oh. from your book. And I've got a whiteboard. So <laughs> if you take a look here, uh, I got three companies in one column and three in the other. And again, I could have picked other companies, but these are the ones that came to mind. So Meta in 2018 had 36,000 employees. In 2021 had 72,000, 100% growth. Alphabet went from 99 to 157, uh, almost 60% growth. And Microsoft, they have a different fiscal year, so it shifted but in that same number of years, went up 53%, you know, 70,000 employees. Huh. And so these are companies you hear, they're kind of trimming, cutting back. But even think about Meta, which announced some big layoffs. Look at that in relation to the number of people they hired. They hired 36,000 people. Yeah. So the number of people they got rid of or are getting rid of pales in comparison to their growth. 
Now, on the other column, we get IBM, which had negative 9% growth. You know, they had some business sales and other things that happened. Oracle, excluding Cerner, had 5% growth, and SAP had 11% growth. Mm -hmm. So I'm not picking on either set of companies, but I want to make a point that growing very fast comes with its own challenges. Yeah. I've worked for a couple of companies that were growing like crazy, either by acquisition or organically. And they're a little different, but at the same time as a CIO or as an executive, if I'm hiring to double my staff, the culture gets diluted. Yeah. In, in a, a normal organization, a new person comes in and there's four people around them physically or virtually that can explain how we do things around here. If you're doubling the staff, I worked for a company once where I was literally tripled the IT department in 18 months. And every month we had a meeting, we all worked in the same buildings, two buildings in two states. We would say, okay, everybody hired since last month, please stand up. Uh -huh. And there were months when half the room stood up. <laughs> now, what does that mean to your culture? What does that mean to your span of control? What does that mean to building the relationships that are important? And especially these days, we talk about the cultural changes involved in working remotely, the pandemic-induced changes, people getting hired and never having met their boss in, in real life until maybe two years after they were hired. So when you look at all these things, Bob, it creates an environment where the challenges are very real. And so companies that have had this kind of environment, have had this kind of change, um, those companies may have to make cuts because they recognize when the economy's slowing, maybe every hire wasn't an A player. So you got that. The other thing, let's talk a little bit accounting, real world accounting. Ah. It's called the big bath theory of financial reporting. So if I know I'm going to have a down quarter and I don't want to get dinged by the analysts and by Wall Street quarter by quarter, I could drip the bad news in uh -huh. or I could take a big bath. I could say, let's throw everything but the kitchen sink, the gap or IFRS allows me to put in. So if I'm going to do layoffs, if I'm going to do staff reductions, I want to front load them. If everybody else is doing it, then nobody dings me as the CFO or CEO. Mm -hmm. So that's the real world of this. You've got to deal with the way companies are growing. So yeah, companies that have reported great earnings growth, great revenue growth, you got to have people. But when you're doubling the company, it does create strains in that company that then have to be worked out. And when a slowdown happens, it's a great time to work that kind of stuff out. Yeah, yeah. You know, Wayne, I think one of the points that you bring out too, right, because you could look at it, you talked about the cultural impact, the big bath and the financial impact there. But I think there's also this other reality that's come up. And you and I have talked about this some, but I really see this happening so much, right? We tend to think of these, you know, the cloud wars top 10. They're like these big, giant monolithic companies, they are changing themselves remarkably fast. And I think the intensity of the change is profound across all these organizations. So they're going to inevitably find themselves where they say, we need more people who can do this and we need less people who can do that. So there's going to be these periodic shifts in their workforce, redeployment. And I know that some people like to say, well, just retrain them or reskill them. You know, that applies in some cases, not all. So I, I believe we will see for the next handful of years, this ongoing adjustments of the companies 
balance the skills, the capabilities they need because of what their customers are requiring or demanding of them. So multiple factors there. There's that one, as you talked about, the financial end of it, and then really watching that cultural impact these days when things are changing at, at such an extraordinary rate. What a interesting, interesting set of numbers, Wayne. Yeah, it's an interesting time to your point, Bob, and you've covered it in a number of your uh, mo- your minutes. And I actually was going to talk about that today, but I thought this was so much more more fun. Um, was talk about the way co- companies support their customers, the cultural changes. Mm-hmm. You know, you've talked about it. You and I talked about it. An IBM or an Oracle who comes from the big enterprise world, supporting multi million, multi centi million, billion dollar budgets. Our approach support differently than somebody that came up from the software as a service, give me a credit card model. Yeah. So yeah. if your if your DNA is supporting the largest companies in the world with extremely high support and, and quite frankly, high cost, you're going to look at the world differently, kind of the Neiman Marcus approach versus the Walmart approach. And as companies, I'm going to pick on Google, which wasn't even, you know, really not a part of our discussion. They started as an infrastructure company, buy stuff from us, run your stuff on it. Here's our email address. If you have a problem, you know, here's our frequently asked questions. And now they recognize that if they want to compete with these more mature, higher up the stack firms, they have to build a more culturally aware support department. What are the problems of their customers? If they're doing industry cloud, if they're starting to partner. And so clearly if you needed X number of engineers, and now you need X number of engineers and Y number of customer support people, and the budget isn't infinitely elastic, something's going to give. Yeah. And I got to say, I built a help desk many years ago, one of the first help desks in America, and I staffed it with the most technical people in my team. Uh They could answer any question when somebody called. It was a terrible, dismal failure. Why? Because they made people feel stupid <laughs> and they didn't do it deliberately. Well, most of them didn't do it deliberately. Some did. Well, anybody would have known that. Why don't you just... And so I wound up changing the staff and I put secretaries. We had a secretarial pool back in the 1980s. I staffed it with admin people. They didn't know the answer to anything day one, but they knew how to handle the phone. They took very good records and they were polite. Yes. And so yeah. I'm going to point out that an engineer doing software development for an engineering product company is not the same person you want to send out to talk to the VP of some business thing at a client site. (laughs) Well, Wayne, if I could, along those lines recently, I was uh, sat down with our company's CIO and uh, he was checking out some new security tools on my computer. And when he looked at it, his eyes popped open. And he said, wow, he said, I have never seen a Mac desktop that looks like this. And he left it at that. He was he was very polite. But I got the underlying message there. Wayne, yeah. These, so um, now, Wayne, how about on the other side, right? Because you have the the... These staff adjustments or layoffs, redeployments, whatever you want to call it, those have definitely happened. We've seen those. But you also pointed out there that in all those, the cases of all those companies, with the exclusion of IBM, there has been a net hiring increase over this time. And I'm sure that, you know, the job market for uh, talented technology people today is, uh, man, that's a, that is a seller's market, right? 
Well, it is in many places. Now, if you're in Silicon Valley, if you're in Seattle, if you're in these hotbeds of software companies and cloud companies, it seems a little softer. I looked at some news reports out of various locales. Now, I live in Texas. In Austin, people are a little frightened. In Dallas, where I live, nobody I know is frightened. The market is still very robust. In fact, there was a story about hiring from Indeed, and I think LinkedIn was involved, talking about a robust tech hiring market next year. So if you're in a place that had all these layoffs concentrated, like San Francisco, you're probably feeling some pain. If you are um, in a more geographically diverse area, you may not be. But Bob, the, the key for me, most of my listeners are not in the software business because most people in the world are not in the software business. They're in logistics, manufacturing, retail, financial services, healthcare, and so on. So what I think is a lot of people are saying, wow, there's X number of meta engineers being let go or Twitter people or whatever. Why don't we hire them? Now that has opportunities and it also has some, some things to be aware of. And I think it's important that the head of HR, the CEO, the CFO, and the CIO recognize the differences in companies between a tech company where tech is the product and a traditional company where while tech is very important, yeah. it isn't the thing we sell. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Wayne, that's uh, it. So much of that's changing so quickly here, right? And I think it was, uh, you know, I saw somebody mention this the other day in a very animated way saying, you know, we've got non-tech companies now are hiring more developers than the technology companies are for the first time ever. And I think it was Sachin Nadella from Microsoft, which owns LinkedIn, that first mentioned that. I, it's got to be two years ago. So while we, uh, it's easy to, you know, trot out the cliches about every company is a software company, blah, blah, blah. You you described that very well. They're saying, well, technology is important to them. You know, they, they haven't quite reached the stage of being a, a software factory, even though it's software is much, much more important to them today than it is before. And, you know, you, you also talked, Wayne, about the, the role of the CHRO. I think, you know, one of the things that I think the best people, leaders and organizations have to be able to do now is drive this culture uh, about this balance, right? This is a new type of workforce, a new type of uh, career development, new types of customer engagement, new types of how we're going to make money in the next five years versus how we did it in the last five years. And more and more, it's going to be dependent on our digital capabilities. So you don't have to become a computer scientist or a data engineer to be successful here, but you got to be exposed to and keen to learn about how those things are affecting every part of the organization. I agree. And I think the good news is the cloud industry and the industries allied with that, with low code, no code, with more self-service data tools that live in the cloud, serverless environments, a whole host of things have made it easier for the average person who knows perhaps an Excel macro to figure out that an Excel macro and power automate isn't that different. Yeah, And I can get self-serve data out of a database that might have petabytes of data, but I don't know that. I just know that the columns I need and the rows I need are right there yeah. and they can get built into my, well, it used to be a spreadsheet, but now it's really an app that runs on people's phones and somehow I built it. 
You know, I think the tools are becoming powerful enough that for the average end consumer business, we can use them to build useful tools. And, and the big key for me, I've been in the software business a couple of times. I've been in the end user company business a lot more. If you're in the software business, as we've talked about before, you focus on the sharpest tools. What did Lincoln supposedly say? If I had four hours to cut down a tree, I'd spend three hours sharpening my ax. <laughs> and so these companies that build giant scale, cloud scale infrastructure, put in the best tools they can find for that particular purpose. A lot of them are built in-house. A lot more of them are built in the open source community. Why? Because one nanosecond better times 10 billion transactions <laughs> is real server capacity, real energy. If I'm working in a traditional company and I got some payroll over here and some sales automation over here and manufacturing over here and logistics over there, I might buy a product from Oracle or Microsoft or a collection of vendors. I don't necessarily go hire 500 engineers and build the best product for my narrow industry, narrow company, narrow focus today. But if I'm Netflix or Google or uh, Meta, well, you know, that's worth doing. Yeah. Because I've got 10,000 engineers building this tool that's used by a billion people every minute of every day. And so I think companies that hire those sorts of engineers, you hire uh, Twitter, Meta, whatever, these are people used to working with cutting edge tools in a cutting edge software factory, putting out continuous integration, continuous, de continuous deployment. And so your model in most industrial companies is a lot more, we have a release every year, we have a release every quarter, we don't have a release every 18 seconds mm -hmm. where some of these companies are making commits and running them through a, an automated factory constantly. Um, just look at the how fast your apps on your iPhone or your Android update. Uh, I have 460 apps on my Android phone and I probably get 40 updates a day to those apps. And every upgrade update is you know 10 or 20 or 30 or 50 things in it. So you think about that, a normal manufacturing, logistics, transportation, healthcare, especially company doesn't move that fast. So culturally, if you're a CHRO and somebody comes to you and says, I want to pick up 20 meta and Twitter engineers from Silicon Valley, and I'm a Pittsburgh-based manufacturing company, um, the culture may be very different. Yeah. You know, yeah. I've worked for, I worked for a bank once that acquired a software company. Two, actually, I've worked for two banks that acquired software companies. They were both dismal failures because banking runs with a different cadence and different metrics than software companies. And so the cultural mismatch was extremely high. Not say it can't be done, but you have to be aware that if I'm in the engineer as God business, which, look, I got two brothers that spent their career in Silicon Valley. They're both retired now, so nobody can can uh, get back at them. And <laughs> the stories they told about working for some of these big companies blew my mind. Yeah. You know, the, the software developers were gods, mm -hmm. and whatever they said went, and the IT department was nothing. You know, in a software company, and somebody correct me if you think I'm wrong, the CIO who runs the back room of the IT for the software company 
is considered a second-class citizen. No, they're no, they don't get any more credibility than the CIO of a company that doesn't care about IT. Where do they spend their energy? The developers building code. And some companies say, if you can't make it as a developer, go work in IT. <laughs> um, it's a different mission. You know, it's not better yeah. or worse. It's different. If I'm building a narrowly focused product based on a product manager over here, if we build it, they'll come. That's a whole lot different than going down to the loading dock and saying, so why are you loading trucks more slowly than you'd like? Mm -hmm. Which mm -hmm. is the problem that a typical IT department solves in a logistics company or manufacturing yeah. company. And so yeah. you got to understand the cultural differences between hiring. How do I say this? What's the derogatory term? A Silicon Valley bro? Uh -huh. You know, that culture of, of craziness that is not always, but some companies have it, the startups especially, how do you bring that into a mature company that moves at a different cadence? And so, Bob, I think it's important to say, if you say, look, I've got 20 openings in my 100-person IT department, I'm going to hire 20 Twitter engineers all at once. You will create a lot of cultural issues unless you're ready for it. Understand your company culture. What, what may, motivates your people every day in your uh, manufacturing company, healthcare yeah. company, whatever. How do you communicate those cultural values to a potential hire? How do you ensure that you're getting the person who will agree with what you're doing, who will want to work there? Not just, I got laid off, I got to find a job. That's the worst time to hire somebody is that they're just coming to you because you're a paycheck. Understand that you're going to be a good fit uh, for them and for you. So spend time focused on your culture, especially these days when we're kind of diffused as everybody works wherever, especially if you're going to hire people. You're, again, I'll, you, I'll pick on Pittsburgh. If you're a Pittsburgh company hiring people in San Francisco and they're going to work remotely, what are the differences, the time zone differences, the cultural differences, the work pattern differences? How do you bring them into the fold and make them feel wanted and valuable and make the people in Pittsburgh or or South Bend, Indiana, or Detroit, where I've lived, feel like those Silicon Valley people are really us. They're not some yeah. outsider. And so it's it's we got to focus on the people, and we've got to not break too many things in the hiring. But I'm going to say this, Bob. There is an opportunity. If you've got a company that is very traditional, we have a data center. We're thinking about the cloud. We release every year. We buy everything and write nothing. Yeah. Maybe this is an opportunity, to your point, about companies being driven more by the capabilities of software in addition to their product. This may be the opportunity to shake the tree, to shake the company up and say, what if we had a continuous integration, continuous delivery tool chain? What if everybody committed their stuff into GitHub instead of doing it in Panvalet, which we all bought 40 years ago, and that's what we still use today? What if we were using more modern tools? And so I think there's an opportunity if a CHRO partners with a CIO, partners with a CFO, partners with the CEO, and says, what are we trying to accomplish culturally? And how can this availability of very cutting edge talent who might be disciplined differently fit into our culture. So it's an opportunity to take the, the kind of the new blood 
and I'm not talking age here, I'm talking about culturally, and bring it into the traditional legacy company and build something that in the acceleration economy takes the traditional, merges it with the modern, and builds something that maybe their competitors can't touch. Yeah. Wayne, you know, I think that's wise, wise counsel on many fronts, but it also, or and it also underscores the notion of right this this uh collapsing or the intentional destruction of silos and some of these uh you know fragmented parts of the organization right so you in in the days when for example the IT organization didn't change much and do much you wouldn't have this conversation right you wouldn't have the CIO talking to the CHRO how do we deal with this cultural issue and then over to finance and then product development and manufacturing, you know, and on and on like that. So every CXO has to be much more cognizant these days of these bubbling up, percolating and intensifying issues about talent, about who engages with the customer. And, you know, these days, like who doesn't uh, in organizations? Are we opening that up enough, um, you know, up and down the line here? Plus, Wayne, I think this idea of um, for some of us, some of us of a certain vintage. And I think you and I might fall into that. You'd come out of school and say, okay, I was trained to be this. That's what I'm going to be. But people today, I just think it's wild to watch the career shifts, the career jumps, plus the opportunities that companies are creating. We need somebody with your intense technical skills to sit over here and deal more with customers in a co-creation sort of way, unlike anything anybody's ever done before. So go create the playbook. There isn't one that we can lean on. I just think it's a very exciting and energizing time, but really that message to any sort of aspiring leader or somebody who is a leader, wants to be a CXO, you know, understand, keep your head up, keep that end-to-end vision going on and the end-to-end perspective about what's happening all across the organization, because people who don't do that are just going to limit their ability to, um, to have those new opportunities, I think, in this very, very different outside in oriented world. Wow, you said a lot of things there, Bob. Um, a couple of a couple of comments. First of all, I think that most of the C-suite, unless it's a dysfunctional organization, already talks. Sales talks to marketing. Sales and marketing hopefully talk to production, uh, R&D. The odd person out has been the IT department, the CIO. And a lot of companies, remember, the CIO is buried one level deep under a CFO, under a COO. So we got to fix that. I'll say this, and I've said it since we started talking four years ago. You got to make IT a member of the team, the leadership team. And if you don't have the right leader, fix that problem, CEO, CHRO, and board. That's, That's number one. Number two, I agree with you. We should take people with a particular skill set and get them out of their comfort zone. Look, I, as a uh, kind of a charitable endeavor, I counsel prisoners. I work with a group called the Prison Entrepreneurship Program, and we work with prisoners, uh, offenders, they're called, coming out and becoming entrepreneurs. And we do like a Shark Tank thing. I got one coming up next week. Um, and I counsel them. And I also work with MBA students at my alma mater, University of Texas at Dallas. And I also counsel veterans on returning into the, you know, the civilian workforce. I tell them all the same thing. Whenever you're tasked to try something new, say yes. So many people go, well, I don't know that. Well, I've never been trained in that. 
well, wait, I work over here. Why do you want me over there? You know what? First of all, they wouldn't do it if they didn't think you could. Second of all, at worst, you learn a new skill and fail. At best, you get promoted. You yeah. get a new set of skills. The best, the best, the best uh, job security is knowing you can get another job. <laughs> it's not something somebody promises you within a company. And so it's funny that I have three diverse groups and my advice is all the same. Learn new things, always be curious, and don't turn down opportunities to learn and do new things. Yeah. You'll discover the people around you don't know any more than you do generally. They're all thinking they're faking it like you are. And so in the modern world, when we're trying to merge the cultures and we're trying to take people on the business side and give them IT skills and trying to take people on the IT side and give them sales and business and relationship skills, there's so many opportunities for these two groups to come together, the techies and the non-techies, if you will, and help each other in ways we never had before. Because again, the tools are not Fortran and COBOL and JCL and assembly language. They are modern low-code tools living off cloud databases with integrated security models. And so you can do so much more. And again, unless you're a company that has high volume, COGS, cost of goods sold, productized IT as your business, the tools that are out now as part of the industry suites, as part of the ERP products and CRM products and AI tools are so powerful that we can build a culture where IT isn't those people over here. IT is just what we do, like meeting and talking and project managing. It's we build. Yeah. And I think we can do many things that way that maybe we couldn't have done five or 10 years ago. And largely that's on account of the cloud purveyors and the industry cloud purveyors, particularly building functional tools and speaking a language that we speak, we the business users speak. Uh, Wayne, good stuff as always. I was going to sign off here and address you as professor, but I think because of all the counseling work you do, and Wayne, thanks for sharing that. Those three examples of the groups that you counsel, it's, it's fascinating. And uh, I think somebody with your level of expertise and experience and insights, that's that's got to be really, really valuable for each of those three sets of uh, constituents there, Wayne. That's great. Thanks for thanks for letting us know about that. Well, again, if, if I love to talk to people. I love to do this. I had some great mentors. We talk about that in another show. I had some great mentors in my day, and I try to return it back to the world. You know, as you get on and you get on in years, you realize you won't live forever. And so since I don't I haven't written a book, I'm going to do it one person at a time, Bob. Perfect. Perfect. That's the, 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 the new digital book. Um, Wayne, thanks a lot. Uh, always a pleasure to speak with you. And uh, thank you for four fantastic years of you sharing your expertise and ideas and your enthusiasm for what's possible in this very interesting world of ours. Yeah, never been a better time to be in IT, never been a better time to be in business. The acceleration economy is real, and we're right in the middle of it. Yeah. Well, thank you, Wayne. And folks, thanks to you for being with us here on Cloud Wars Live. Uh, we're entering the holiday season. Hope it's a wonderful, wonderful time for you and your families. Thank you for spending some of your time with us, and we look forward to seeing you again soon.